This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Go-Go. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for tuning in for an hour of science. Uh, we are going to just blow your mind today. We've got three amazing guests on amazing topics, which uh, Dr. Ray, who's in the studio with me, and I are very excited about, aren't we, Dr. Ray? I am, Dr. Shane. It's, um, um, it's rare that we get uh, three topics that are so different but uh, it, we, it'll be cool today. It'll yes, cool. I think so. Yeah. I, I'm even excited. I actually read a popular book on one of them, so I'm like, yeah. woohoo, bring it yeah. up. Yeah, no, it's all good stuff. We're going to start you off with some news, though, and uh, unfortunately there's no one else in here but you and me today. The rest of the team, we have a lot of people who seem to be traveling. Uh, this well, is what scientists do. In, in fairness, I did get back Friday night from a yep. two-and-a-half-week trip. Um, it was a whirlwind trip over Europe. I went to two different conferences. I went to a company. I, I got to finish the Finland for, you know, because they do, would you believe this? They do a huge amount of research on what to do with trees mm. and what products they can make with them and, and stuff okay. like that. Cause you know, Finland, lots of trees. Yeah. Lots of trees. Um, and, uh, and, and one of the conferences was very cool. I, I didn't just get to go attend a really great conference. I also gave one of the plenary lectures at it, which is, is kind of a, a big deal because everybody at the conference comes and listens to yeah. what you've talked about for research. So that was, that was exciting. It was on one of the earlier days because my recollection, I haven't been to a conference in a while, but it was on one of the later days. People were pretty seedy in the mornings I, after uh, the I, conference. Well, if you're I, on I, the morning after the conference dinner, it wasn't good. No, no, I was on the day after the conference dinner, but not the morning. In fact, I, I was the last talk of the conference to finish with a big, you know, exciting, <laughs> really engaging talk with lots of pictures and, and exciting colors and, and, and cool outcomes. And that uh, actually went pretty well. That sounds good. Now, uh, tell me, news, uh, uh, what have we got? So I was, I was really excited about this story today because, you know, Dr. Shane, so the, the personal connection, and I know I shouldn't bring this up, is, is, is that I've kept marine fish in different times over, over, over my life. I've even yep. raised seahorses and I, I know you've also actually kept marine fish as well. But so, the reef is this amazing thing. Mm. Any, any, any reef, but the Great Barrier Reef. But one thing that I've actually heard it, and just as, 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 as not a marine biologist, every time I heard that, I went, yeah, how does that work? Because the marine reefs are teeming with life, an amazing amount of biodiversity. And you always hear how the waters around a reef are not nutrient rich, mm. right? That you have this teeming island of, 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 Life and biodiversity and biomass surrounded by basically a nutrient desert. Mm, and yeah. you kind of go, all right, well, we, we know coral converts sunlight into energy and, and we understand photosynthesis and plankton and stuff. But how does the nutrient hang out there? There's not that much around it. And that's actually not just a, hey, how does that add up question that you might think about when you think about research? Scientists have been actually been wondering about this for quite some time as well. And they think they have a better understanding or at least a direction to go on why on earth the reefs survive in the way they do. How does that nutrient cycle work? And so this is really interesting work out of a series of researchers from uh, a university in Canada, the Smithsonian, and even some of our researchers from the ARC Center of Excellence for Coral Reef Studies and um, James Cook University were also part of this work, uh, where they actually think they found out that one of the biggest ways that the nutrient pump or the way that we're able, the, the reef is able to keep and feed so much biomass are um, these small marine fish. They're less than five centimeters and they have great names because they're, 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 um, they're, they're rarely seen and, um, and, and so they're hiding and they're called cryptobenthic 
fish. Mm. And these are crypto because they're hard to see and benthic, which means they live on the ground or in the reef. Um, and they're, they're basically things, most of these fish are less than five centimeters and you might call them blennies. So we're mm. talking about these small fish. Um, they live in tubes and reef. They live on the ground. They, they, they tend to sift through the sand. They harvest things. They eat a lot of things that would fall down for debris, but they actually think that these fish, um, through quite an interesting study on population modeling are kind of, they make up about 40% of the biodiversity of the reef in these different types of small species. But they also reckon that they're about 60% of the biomass that is eaten. Wow. And so their life cycle is quite unusual in that. So as fish larvae, they don't make many eggs, but there's a huge number of these small fish. Hmm. And it's the larva stage. So this is interesting. So most of the time when fish are larvae, how do fish become fish? So once they hatch from eggs and they become larvae, they're in open water, which is pelagic as opposed to benthic. Cool terms here. And so they live out, but instead of living out in the open water, these larvae actually hang around the water columns right around the reef. And so this is what other fish eat. All these big fish eat the fish larvae, and, and that's actually how they grow. And then eventually some of them become the small little blennies. Yeah. But this cycle of not only do they, they hang around the reef, they tend to go back to the places they're from. So this nutrient cycle of these little fish making larvae, getting eaten, filling with the reef is this nutrient pump cycle that lives in the reef and right around the reef. And so that's where they think their nutrients actually recycle in it. And then the big fish eat the little larvae. And that's yeah. actually, and, and be, that's where they're getting a lot of their nutrition. And there's so many little fish. And this cycle is so ongoing that even with fluctuations in season, it's like a constant food supply for this wall of mounts that's the rest of the reef. Hmm. Whereas big fish, they have seasonal effects. That yeah. This nutrient engine for the reef, they reckon, is actually around these small larva fish. And these little guys are the ones who, they look like they're skipping across the ground like little puppies, don't they? They do. They're, they're, they're very cute and they're, very they're, interactive. They're cute. They're interactive. Sometimes you go, it's not like a fish. It's got like a tail in it. Yeah, it is looks like it's walking. Fins yeah, to kind of walk around. Walk. Yeah, they're kind of um, they're kind of weird little guys, but they're they're really cute. The, the, yeah, and I mean, and 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 you know, some of the more common names are like uh, goby blennies, jawfish, um, mm. mandarins, the, all these different cute types of blennies, and they're predominantly that. There's a few other species as mm. well that they fell into it. And this was a really interesting study in population modeling. There's there's a huge number of unknowns. They did a pretty good job and estimating that model to actually show, well, if you think about where things get eaten, where the nutrients end up, this is a whole new way to look about the reef and mm. and to understand how that nutrient cycle comes into play because they said, we really need to understand this. The implications for reef bleaching, how does, you know, nutrients aren't flowing over a reef. It's really contained in these in these life cycles. So when a reef gets bleached, how does that actually play out to the nutrient yeah. cycle? It so. gives you an idea of what to monitor. Exactly. So if you monitor bleeding numbers and they start going down, you're in trouble. I so. think so. Now, I was, well, we seem to be on an ocean floor uh, kind of uh, topic this morning, but one of the things that's coming out of Columbia University is a new study of part of the U.S. northeast coastline. And this is really interesting because... How do they not know? They, I thought they knew well, that it's like a very well-studied area yeah, so, of the ocean. So it's interesting because it's well-studied often because of mining projects in particular. So they do a lot of drilling to mm -hmm. see if there is, you know, resources. And from back in the 1970s, they've been doing the, you know, drilling off the off the coast um, of the US there. And what they often find when they drill is they get below the sea, you know, you drill into the seafloor, so it's not, in, you're not drilling in water, you're drilling below the water. And you get to a point where you hit pockets of all sorts of things. And one of the things that they've often found with some of these drill sites is they've hit pockets of freshwater. 
and as opposed to salty water, which you think it's it kind of unusual little, that deep. Yeah, it's a little counterintuitive that you would find um, fresh water below the seabed, but that's actually what they found. And and the idea at the time was, well, you know, these are if you think of the the, the range over which you're talking about, it's kind of like little pinpricks into mm. into the seafloor. You you do this one little drill site, and you say, oh, we found a little bit of fresh water there. That seems to be an anomaly. Like moving a freak on. aquifer or something. Yeah, moving on. And, you know, you go somewhere else. And if you think about uh, what this coastline was like back in the last ice age when sea levels were much lower and there was a lot of a lot of ice in the area, you, you can imagine, okay, well, maybe there was some fresh water that got trapped there at some stage oh, when right. things changed. But um, one of the – so some of the researchers who have been working at Columbia University with these, you know, drilling companies over the years have now been studying this area of seafloor in a very different way. So what they've been doing is they've been taking um, essentially a system that uses electromagnetic waves and it pumps those waves through the ocean or through the ocean floor – and it looks at how those waves are reflected back or how they, how they conduct through those particular areas. Mm-hmm. And you can do this artificially. So you can drag a little, um, a generator of these waves behind a boat and, and do that. Or you can wait for a lightning strike or certain solar flares and so forth. All sorts of things will give you this sort of data. But what they've been doing is dragging, you know, a specific emitter of these things behind a boat and they look at how much, uh, the electromagnetic waves are conducted through that area of seafloor. And one of the things they know is that if there's salt water, it gets conducted better than if there's fresh water. Okay. And in doing this, what they've found is this monstrous aquifer along the coastline there of the US that is just enormous. It travels the majority of that coastline and heads out about 50, um, 50 miles out from from the uh, the coast. And it is somewhere, you know, it ranges, it, it spreads, you know, between somewhere of about uh, 600 to 1,200 feet below the seafloor. So you have to pump through oh, the wow. seafloor to this sort of porous region um, that exists well below the, where the seafloor sits, or, you know, the bottom of the ocean. And then all of a sudden you find this massive body of, it's not perfectly non-salty, you know, there's a little bit of salinity there, but well, it's, 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 it's completely different to ocean water. Well, aquifers are in equilibrium with the rock, and yeah, so whatever yeah. rocks underneath the seafloor might have... But what it comes down to, of course, is if you wanted to use this as a resource, um, your, the requirements to actually clean it up and make it usable oh, is much cool. simpler compared to trying to do that with seawater. So did, did they comment if they know if this aquifer is at all linked to the land-based aquifers? I mean, well, at, at that level, does yeah. when you get under land versus sea, does the rock So this, this is interesting. Um, they think uh, there are two things at play here. One is there's a historical setting up of this, this aquifer that was probably around the last ice age. So that's, okay. you know, tens of thousands of years ago um, was when it's set up. But they believe it's continually being fed. So it's not something that's static. It's actually changing with time as a result of flow in from from land-based sources. So, and the interesting thing about this is that there's no, one of the things that they, they find most fascinating about this is because of its extent and, and where it sits, they don't believe there's significant reasons not to expect to find similar aquifers 
in other locations around the planet, uh, right on the edge of that continental shelf before you drop off. Where there'd been an ice age. Where there'd been an ice age. So it may well be that using these same techniques, these electromagnetic wave scanning techniques, which are relatively new and very sophisticated, they may be able to find more sources of fresh water, which is, you know, which is a huge problem for us at the moment around the world and it will become a bigger problem as time goes on um, around these coastlines. So, but this one is big. It's possibly oh. the biggest one in the world detected so far. They're just, they're still mapping parts of it, but it is big and it holds a monstrous amount of water. So, Interesting. Interesting. Um, we're we're a watery planet. There's no doubt about it. So that's wild. Yeah. So it's something that uh, I think it's it's amazing. You, you don't. I, I've I've always the one that's always blown me away is Lake Vostok under, uh, you know, several miles below the surface of Antarctica, mm. which is just amazing, sealed off, you know, for for a long, long time. But the idea of them being under the ocean floor as well is quite. Um, is yeah, quite that, that, that's so, really counterintuitive. Yeah, it's counterintuitive, but it's there, and um, and it's. Yeah, it's extensive. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 RRR in Melbourne, Australia. Now, hopefully, if our technology is working well, we have Debbie Bauer on the phone. Debbie, can you hear us? It is, yes, I'm here. Great, Debbie. Now, you're a lecturer in ecosystem rehabilitation in the environmental and rural science at University of New England. Have I got that all right? Yeah, that's all, all right. Excellent. Now, there's a lot of stuff going on around the world with regards to our frog populations. Before we get into your specific work, can you give us a bit of a rundown on what's happening? Because I think most of our listeners will have heard that there's some concerns, but what, what's it like worldwide in terms of frog, frog populations at the moment? Well, things aren't looking too good for our froggy friends. There's currently over 40% of species are threatened with extinction. Mm-hmm. So getting close to half our frogs that are looking like they might not make it into the future. And the really interesting thing with frogs is that one of the main causes of, of those threats has been from from a disease. So um, the amphibian chytrid fungus, which is basically like athlete's foot, except that it gets on their skin and it actually kills them. Mm. Uh, it, it, yeah, go ahead, sorry. I was going to say, it happened in Australia. We had declines in the 80s. Um, and so we lost about eight of our frog species uh, to the fungus then, and we saw many more decline. Is this a naturally occurring fungus that's sort of always been there somehow in limbo with the, the frogs? It is natural in that it um, comes out of... They think that it originated in Korea, so it was natural in Asia, mm-hmm. and their frogs are largely tolerant to it. Mm. But... Like many of the invasive species we see, like cane toads, um, they have come to areas where they weren't naturally, we think. We think that they weren't here naturally, and it's spread around the world, this super virulent strain, and has has gotten into different places where it causes problems to frogs that aren't tolerant to it. In terms of the spreading, do, do we have a good feel for the, the cause of that? I, I can imagine that us travelling around in various ways is a big part of it, but do we have a a good um, feeling for exactly what's going on? Not exactly. Um, They think that in the olden days when we were shipping frogs around the country for scientific research and when people have shipped animals to be pets in different regions, all that kind of movement around the world has, um, has been part of the problem. Mm. And we know that it lives on the frog skin, it lives in the tadpole mouth parts, and it can survive 
um, in any kind of aquatic media. So when we ship around, yeah, different animals, that different frogs and so forth, then it, we can take it with us. Yeah. In terms of, I mean, you mentioned some pretty scary numbers there in terms of the frog populations and the number of species. Are there... You, there is obviously some that are resistant to this, but um, what's the deal with the frogs sort of adapting to this? Is it is it very similar to, you know, like the, the Tasmanian devil, for example, and the, the facial cancer stuff where they're just really not adapting to this? They're not adapting fast enough to get by. Is that, is that the same scenario with the frogs or are there some species that look like they're going to be able to adapt? Well, Ben Shiel of um, the Australian National University published a paper a few months ago and he did a global review and looked at frogs in all different parts of the world and how many were declining and how many were adapting. And of all of the frogs that were affected from the beginning, about 12% have shown signs of recovery, so mm-hmm. not too many. But we have seen in um, North Queensland, for example, um, the waterfall frog um, has, it it originally declined and then it started coming back and its populations have recovered at higher elevations. But alongside it, the common mist frog and the Australian lacewood have not really come back and they're not doing so well. So it can be really variable between species. Um, This is Dr. Reid, just as an avid frog lover and frog catcher from being a child uh, in creeks and streams uh, just remind me so how does uh, how do frogs really fit in the ecosystem what's their critical function for a whole ecosystem i mean i know they, they look cute they swim they eat bugs but how do they what's can you can you tell me a little bit more about the importance of frogs from an eco ecological point of view Sure. Frogs are interesting because they're one of these cool critters that has kind of two different sets of function because they do quite different things as tadpoles is what they do when they're adults. And if you think about the difference in size um, from when a tadpole turns into a frog, it's quite dramatic. And so as tadpoles, they eat algae and they play this role in nutrient recycling in the aquatic ecosystem, in the water, in the streams, in the ponds. And then they metamorphose and they turn into little froglets and they become prey for other animals like birds and um, snakes and um, mammals like quolls. And they're also a form of pest control. So they eat lots of bugs and frogs can obtain really, really high densities. So in places like rice paddies, they're a really important form of pest control. Mm. Um, Debbie, with the numbers you're talking about and the declines you're talking about, presumably we'd be seeing some of the changes in those other species that are being controlled by frogs. Is that something that's cropping up now? Are we seeing like some of the insects, for example, their populations getting out of control or anything like that? Are the effects of such massive declines in numbers being seen through the ecosystem? There's There's not any really good experimental evidence for it. But one of the problems that we have when we talk about that is that in Australia, when the frogs started declining, we had no idea what was causing it. And there was a large delay before we figured it out, before Lee Berger from James Cook University at the time found this fungus. She's a veterinarian and she spent a long time looking at what was causing these declines. And scientists at the time had never seen anything like it. So there were even arguments between scientists saying it can't be a disease. We've never seen a disease do this to us to a to a group of species before. And so there wasn't that kind of pre pre decline data looking at exactly those aspects 
to quantify it afterwards. Mm. So in Australia, we kind of got taken by surprise. Um, and now we really know the afterwards, but not the before. Yeah, interesting. Now, one of the things you're looking at, of course, is the um, uh, basically the situation in New Guinea, where I understand um, the frogs so far have not been affected by this fungus. Is that right? As far as we know, that's right. So it's really exciting. New Guinea is the world's largest tropical island, so it's it's a big space. And we've been working there for the last four years doing surveys of museum specimens and going out into the field and, and catching as many frogs as we can. And now it's really easy to, to survey for the disease. We just swab the frog on its back, on its tummy, on its feet, and we can use genetic means to test whether the fungus is there. Mm. And all of the samples, we've analysed over 300 samples from across New Guinea and they've all come back Um without the fungus so far. So it's either completely absent so far or it's not across the whole island. So, I mean, this is fascinating because essentially you have an arc population there of a lot of... I mean, I know it doesn't represent all the frog species across the world, but you have a population that's untainted. What what do you need to do to keep it that way, though? Because it seems as though this would just be a matter of time, right? Yeah, that's what we expect. Um, New Guinea is interesting in that it doesn't have the same level of imports that many other countries have. It's it's quite isolated. It's not a huge destination for tourism. Mm. So it's kind of isolated in that sense. And that's likely to change in the future as it becomes more visited and they have more imports and it grows economically. So we suggests that we need some preemptive conservation, some collaboration between disease experts and people in New Guinea who know the area and have experience working um, in that in that sector and to come together and plan preemptively how to avoid the risks, how to increase biosecurity and stop the fungus from getting in, but at the same time develop a strategy to respond if it does get in. Yeah. I, I know this may be a, a sort of a, a cane toad type question, but is it possible to use some of the unaffected species in New Guinea to repopulate some of the locations in other countries where the frogs have been decimated? It isn't impossible, but probably the main problem we would have is that there's, there's only a few species that New Guinea shares with um, Australia. Mm. So Asia hasn't seen decline, so they wouldn't have a problem with that. But if we wanted to to re-release species in Australia, New Guinea doesn't have corroboree frogs. They don't have gastric brooding frogs. They don't have the mist frogs and all those species that we lost in Australia. We don't have backup populations in New Guinea. Yep. They do have green tree frogs and white-lipped tree frogs, but we still have those here. So. Yeah. Mm. And, and Debbie, you you and the team have developed a five-step program now to, to try and keep the, the fungus out of New Guinea. Do you want to just quickly speak to that? Sure. So the first thing to do in, in a situation like this is to be prepared. So to get together with people who can help respond, disease experts, people in New Guinea, the government, um, people in biosecurity, and really do a risk assessment of where the fungus is likely to come in from, whether it's from the trade of frogs, frog's legs in Western New Guinea or whether it's likely to come in in equipment through Papua New Guinea. Mm-hmm. 
And then they need to to prevent it from happening, so to do education and make people aware that it's a risk, um, perhaps ban imports, use policy to reduce the risk of it coming in um, and to up the biosecurity. And we've suggested um, that we need to monitor for disease in New Guinea, so have a really well-established program all across the country looking out for the amphibian fungus so that when it comes in, we know where and we know where it's going to spread to and where to respond to first. Yep. Um, sorry. Yep, and then, I guess, re- response and recovery if it happens. Yes, being the last two, yeah. Um, Debbie, look, it's 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 great uh, that you you and the team are on this. I'm so surprised to hear that New Guinea's free of this, and um, we've heard so many bad stories from around the world of all the frog declines. But it sounds like a, a great area of study to keep it free of this disease, and hopefully, it will give us some of the answers to help the other frog, frog populations around the world. So, good luck with the ongoing work, and thanks so much for chatting to us today. Thanks very much, Shane. All the best. Thank you. That was Debbie Bauer, a lecturer in ecosystem rehabilitation and environmental and rural science at the University of New England, working on frogs. Um, yeah, I, I, I would love a job where part of my job was frog catching. You could, that, that would you be could, awesome. You could change. It's never too late, Ray. Good point. Um, <laughs> it's probably a little too late. But it Possibly. Too, you might not get paid much. You might, you know, you'd have to go back a step or two. Um, but in, interesting uh, work there because I think uh, we forget just how much when you take one piece out of an ecosystem, the entire ecosystem can collapse or change yeah. radically. And it, it always scares me when scientists sort of say they're not sure what that would look like because it's so complicated. Yeah, well, particularly frogs when yeah. two different ecosystems, basically. Yeah. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. In the studio with us now is Associate Professor Larry Croft. He's from Deakin University. Larry, welcome to the studio. Thank you. Uh, thanks so much for... You've made the, the long trip up from uh, from Geelong for us, too, which we, we very <laughs> much appreciate. It makes it sound like, for our international listeners, Geelong is like a different country compared to Melbourne. It's only an hour out of town. hour out of town. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Melbourne's a big city, so if you actually leave the leave the edge of the city, it feels like yeah. you've gone a long way. Now you, you're working on, um, I, I have to say, a, should I say a plant, a tree, a tree. Uh, yep. that is one of the most fascinating that I've ever come across. I think it's extraordinary. The Wallamai pine. Before we get into the the sequencing stuff that you're about to do, can you give us a bit of a rundown on the Wallamai pine? Because I think most people will have heard about it, but it is just extraordinary that we've found this tree. And give, give us a bit of a, a yep. history. So just just for me, um, I think in Newcastle, there's a museum in Newcastle, mm. and there's an amazing fossilised Wallamai pine from the Permian. So it's in the coal seams. They dug it out of the coal seams. Yep. And you can see it's, fa- it's really quite clear. You can see all the leaves and mm. the whole thing. It's mm. quite fabulous. But anyhow, everyone thought it was extinct for at least 100 million years. Yeah. Yeah. And then in the 90s, lo and behold, there it is growing just at about 100 and something kilometres from Sydney. Right. So that's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> and this, I mean, this is one of the things where... I suppose from the view of paleontologists and so forth, I mean, it's, it is literally from the time of the dinosaurs yep. and it is unchanged from yeah. that time. Yeah. And so, as you say, you've got one in the fossil record, which yeah. is sitting there, and then you, you look over here and it's, it's, it's like finding a, a T-Rex or something just wandering around in, in the, yep. the back streets of Sydney. It's, Incredible. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, and it's... And when you compare those two, they, they are identical, aren't they? I mean, it hasn't yeah. evolved much or no, that we can tell. As far as we can tell, it looks, you know, identical. Um, the leaves, uh, 
it, everything about it is, is is really really close, and that's probably because it's you know like like sharks and crocodiles. Yeah, it's just it, perfect. Yeah, it, yeah, it's in a good spot. And it just sticks with it. Um, yeah, but. It's it's remarkable to find it in Australia because the climate in Australia from now and 100 million years ago is yeah. not the same. So was there anything particularly special about where they found it? Yeah, it was in a gorge and that probably protected it from fire. Okay. So as Australia's dried out, you know, uh, fire has become more prevalent and that's probably part of the reason why it's survived in that gorge. Yeah. It, yeah. It, it's interesting to me, uh, as you said, like, you know, sharks, crocodiles and so forth, that there are certain species on the earth that just seem to get to a point of perfection where they did their job in the ecosystem, whatever that was, just so perfectly that they stopped evolving. They didn't get better eyesight. They didn't get better fins. They didn't get better skin. They didn't get better leaves. They just, it's like, well, you know what? This is just perfect. And the, and the pressures for evolution just weren't there. But So one thing though that's fascinating about this, you just use sharks as an example. Mm. There's a whole bunch of sharks. There's a large oh, yeah. genetically yeah, yeah. diverse population. It's a plant in one gorge. <laughs> so, so, am I right? Genetically, it, it's not terribly diverse. They have like no. it, the DNA. I mean, it, it's one population and one genetic strand. That's it. It's, Is that? It's pretty terrifyingly inbred. And that's, yeah. that's one of the great mysteries about this plant is how did it survive? And it's so inbred. There's only 60 plants in the wild. Yeah. Wow. And you, you sequence the DNA and there's very, very little variation between individuals. So it's sort of like a banjo plucking six fingered, mm. you know, <laughs> inbred tree. Yeah. But it, it, it's remarkably healthy looking. So that, so the question we had is how is that possible? If you look at the angiosperms that have flowers and stuff, they're very d- genetically diverse. And compared to the gymnosperms, the sort of more pine tree things, they're quite low diversity, but they seem to get along quite well. Mm. So one of the mysteries of the genome is what, how does that work? How, how can it survive with so little genetic diversity? I mean, that's an interesting thing for us in, in a way, isn't it? Because when we're looking at so many, and we were just talking with our guest from from uh, up north about uh, frog extinctions and so forth, and when, when you have a scenario where the genetic diversity starts going down in populations, and I think the, you know, the pygmy possums and some of these other, you know, um, things have had this similar problem where the diversity has been problematic. Yeah. I mean, does, does does the Walmai pine perhaps teach us that maybe that's a more complex question than we know? Yes, I think so. And that's what we'd like to find out. There's various suspicions of what's going on. One thing is that the Walmai pine is a very, very large genome. Mm. So it has a huge genome. And a lot of the plants with very low genetic diversity also have very large genomes. So there's this idea of epigenetic diversity. So the the repeats and all the what we think of as junk in the in the genome might actually be acting as a a source of epigenetic diversity right so so that and by that you mean the the tree is taking on the environmental factors it experiences and incorporating that somehow into its genome yeah. as differences from other trees yeah or right? even even maybe in a in a less lamarckian way just that even though there's the genome's kind of set in stone Mm. But there's these markers on the genes to turn them on and off, and they can be changed from individual to individual or even branch to branch in right. the tree. And that stochastic random sort of variation acts as a pool of, of diversity, even though yep. the genome is, is set in stone. Right. Now, so, now, so hang on, i got an ignorant question yeah. on that. No? So does that mean if you were to you look at the genome on different trees or different parts of a tree, it's the same? 
but you might look at the actual things in the tree, its protein expression could be different. Yes, and, and this is really interesting. And, and, and coming from working in Malaysia, I, I actually saw this firsthand. So in Malaysia, they've got oil palm. Mm-hmm. The genome's identical because they're cloned trees. So we can go out and we did this. You, you, you pluck two leaves, you sequence the genomes. Not a single nucleotide difference in the two billion bases or so of the oil palm. But however, the trees are quite different when you look at mm. the variation. The phenotypic variation's quite big. So some trees are big and tall and others are wide and some, you know, have branches that stick out a long way. And the, and it looks like the genetic, the, the diversity is not from the, the genome, but actually the epigenetic. So when we sequence the methyl, the methylation on the DNA, we actually see huge variation across the trees, even though they're clones. Mm. That's oh. fascinating. Yeah. yeah. Now, the team down at Deakin, you're looking at uh, sequencing. You're doing the proper sequ- full sequence of the genome of the Wallamai pine. I mean, what's uh, first of all, what's the motivation for doing it, and then how how do you go about that? Motivation is basically because it's so exciting. Yeah. Like how. You know, hundred billion year old yeah, exactly. fossil that's yeah. alive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's incredible. Yeah. It's like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> being a DNA nerd. That's the first thing I think of yep. when I discover a dinosaur. Would be just yeah, to yeah. Let's sequence it. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. Yep. And 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 what's the process for um, for doing that? So the process is we've got a big sequencing machine and we you know extract the DNA out of the leaves and we make it what's called the DNA library and then we basically feed it into the machine. We're also using another type of sequencing machine called a nanopore sequencer and that's as the words make clear it's just a little tiny hole mm. and the DNA gets threaded through the hole and the electric charge is measured as the DNA runs through the hole and the nanopore sequencer, the great thing is you can actually sequence huge chunks of DNA like a million bases in one go mm. but not very accurately so we mm. use the other sequencer to get a very highly accurate sequence yep. and then between the two with a very very big supercomputer we put all the bits together right. and we get a final sequence there, there must be a fair bit of interest around the world in in this sequencing occurring you'd think i mean as you say i mean you, you you're sequencing a live dinosaur yeah you think so but it doesn't seem to be ah, just they just don't understand what's going on um, exactly. <laughs> but, but is is there a comparison i mean what what's um what else is out there that uh you know, a few frozen woolly mammoths and, and, and some wolf heads um, <laughs> have recently been found. But, but otherwise, I mean, but that's recent stuff, right? Yeah. It's not hundreds of millions of years. They're often, you know, 50 to 100,000 years. It's not, you know, what, what is there that we can sequence that's that old? There are things like ginkgo mm-hmm. and uh, a few other, you know, obviously sharks and crocodiles right, are quite course, interesting yeah. yep. and amphibians. Yep. And we can also, from all the different genomes, we can interpolate back to say what was the original, right. you know, dinosaur genome look like. And yeah. we can get a rough idea of it based, sequence all the bird genomes, and then we look back at what's the common bits. Yeah. And, and there's actually people who've reverse engineered bird genomes and you get a, a chicken with teeth right. and a jaw because all that stuff's still in the still genome. Still in the genome, yeah. 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 Look, it's, it's absolutely fascinating, and I think, um, Larry, uh, it'll be great to to see what, you know, if there's any surprises coming out when you've done it. When's it due to be finished? This? <laughs> um, probably another year or six months. Yep. Yeah, we have the DNA all sequenced. It's just yep. a matter of sticking all the, the, the data. It's the data processing yeah, and yeah. takes time. Yep. Well, um, look, great to hear that we're doing that down there at Deakin, and um, good luck with it. No, it's fantastic to find someone so excited about this particular <laughs> This particular tree, because it is it is a living it's a living fossil that um, you know as as we were saying it's just hiding there not far from Sydney. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> meanwhile, someone's studying it in a museum, yeah. you know, in a rock. And hey, there's a real one yeah, yeah, just, just down yeah. the road.
<laughs> Thanks so much for coming in and chatting to us, and uh, good luck with the project. Uh, and let us know when it's all done. We'll we'll chat again if there's some cool stuff coming out. Thank you. Thanks. Associate Professor Larry Croft is from Deakin University. Three triple. Folks, it's all happening here in the studio. Everything's uh, going on today. We've got, we've got so many guests. I love That's it. exciting. We fill the studio with guests because Ray and I are too boring to listen to. Well, I am. I speak for myself. Uh, in the studio with us <laughs> now. let that one go by to the keeper. Uh, is Paul, uh, Pence Paul, who is from the School of Earth Sciences at the University of Melbourne and from the Flory Institute in Parkville. Ben's welcome to the studio. Thanks very much for having me. And our good friend Lyndon was uh, kind enough to put us in contact, which is great because uh, you work in an area which I have to say, you're going to have to explain some some of this to me because it sounds awesome. Um, and we'll get to where the reason why you're also working at the Flory. But in terms of the geology stuff, I guess, in the earth sciences, you work with a technique called, and I'm just going to whack it out there and you can, you can pull it apart, laser ablation inductively coupled plasma mass spectroscopy. I mean, that is a mouthful. It is. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds to me like you're blowing shit up and then measuring what comes off. And that's that's is pretty it, much it. Yeah. That, yeah. yeah. How does this work? So we use the laser to uh, the, we have a sample and it's kept in a, a cell and that has gas flowing through it and then the laser hits it and turns it into an aerosol mm-hmm. and that aerosol is then sucked into the mass spectrometer which is the ICP MS part of that big long mouth row. and uh, it's really good because the laser is great at turning stuff into aerosols we use particular lasers that are that are designed for that and uh, the mass spectrometers uh uh, really good at what it does, which is measuring these very, very low concentration um, of things. You know, uh, like uh, for instance, we're looking at calcium, phosphorus, those sorts of things in the biological samples. Um, yeah, so it's it's combining two techniques and getting the best out of both. So the laser is great at sampling, and the mass spectrometer is great at measuring um, a very low concentration. So, so in terms of in geology, in, in you know fields where you're looking at rocks and so forth, I mean, what what sort of things would you would you look at there with that technique? Uh, so. I started off doing my PhD looking at the chemistry of uh, volcanoes and looking at these very tiny little uh, inclusions in crystals to help us learn more about the plumbing systems of volcanoes. Um, So when we look at the way we normally would look at rocks, would be we would dissolve them up in acid and then we'd measure them. But when you do that, you start averaging things Mm. out because you're looking at the average of the entire rock. Whereas these tiny little bits that we could only get out with the laser that are like, you know, the thickness of a human hair type um, uh, di- uh, dimensions, um, we, got, we can hit them with the lasers, zap them with the laser, and then start to work out how they, um, what they tell us about how the plumbing systems work. Yeah, yeah. Did you ever get uh, manage to get your hands on like a meteorite or a piece of uh, even better Mars rock or something and whack uh, any one of these machines? Uh, yeah, we just measured uh, a meteorite just recently, actually. Oh, wow. Yeah, oh, yeah. Looking cool. At, uh, yeah. Because uh, when, when you talk about that that sort of confinement of lo- localised measurement, you know, as opposed to just dissolving the whole thing in acid, that's where, you know, especially things like meteorites now are super fascinating in yeah, some of the yeah. small inclusions and things that you find in there. They have this amazing internal textures yeah. of like very small features and large features. So, I mean, I even remember people in our department used to look at green concrete this way, where they would try to make a a, a non-Portland cement-based concrete, and they'd take it up in pieces because you have to understand the structure of the thing on a scale of you can't just dissolve a block of concrete, you won't learn anything. Yeah. So, this is fascinating. Just remind me, what's the MS part do? What does a mass spectrometer do? Uh, so it um, uh, it tells us how much of a particular um, element is there. So uh, the the sample as it comes from the laser is 
in the mass spectrometer, it's turned into ions, and then the mass spectrometer only lets through certain ions of a uh, ions of a certain mass at a certain time come through. So, for example, it'll let through lithium first, then it'll let through you know each of the elements in turn, and it'll tell you how many of those ions are there at that time. Yeah. Now, Ben, just but, for the listeners out there who may not be aware. The Florey Institute does not deal with rocks or geology or volcanoes. <laughs> it deals with brains um, and, and a few other things. But you know, generally, uh, generally, it's mainly neuroscience. Um, what what got you over there? What what's the the deal with your geology mastery uh, interacting with the neuroscience people? Well, the 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 laser ablation stuff was uh, pioneered by geologists and geoscientists, uh, but it's equally good at uh, ablating um, biological samples. And so, and you'd think, you know, that we would know lots about these very trace elements, um, very low level concentration stuff in things like brains, but it turns out it's very hard to measure and especially to do it in a way that's spatial, like, so building up maps of where certain elements are. So, uh, they were starting to work on this and, uh, I got chatting to one of them and, uh, I said, I think we can probably help you, um, with this sort of, this sort of work. And we end up building a, a 3D model of iron and phosphorus and copper and zinc in a mouse brain mm. um, and then looking at that to work out how iron is related to Parkinson's disease because yep. iron uh, accumulation is is associated with Parkinson's disease. Yeah. So we we, um, we had a really great discussion with Ashley Bush, who you probably oh, yeah. know from, from the Flory about iron and Alzheimer's in that yeah. case. Yeah. Uh, and that was that was great to understand, you know, how some of these, these materials, these metals and so forth that we just don't think about in the body could be contributing to... To this sort of scenario. So when you, when you look at the brain, uh, I mean, there must be, there must be a very large number of chemicals, uh, in there at, at a given time. I mean, what, what do you see in terms of the relative measures of these, you know, things like iron and so forth? And can you, can you track how they, how they build up over time. I mean, what, what sort of questions are you asking with regards to iron? That's, that's the, what the neuroscientists that I'm working with are doing is they're trying to work out how these systems work. So in the early days, they were just trying to work out where high iron was and, yep. and, and just. Uh, and I'm not a biologist, but the metals are associated with the function of the brain. So yeah. if you have yep. um, areas that have high metabolic rates, they'll have different um, chemical composition. Yep. So um, now they're starting to do those experiments where they change things and they see how that affects the chemical composition. So that's that's what they're up to now. So uh, along, you said knowing where the iron is. So w- when you say 3D map, are you... Mapping on, on on a tissue level, a cellular level, like when you say you've made a 3D map of iron in the brain, what's the length scale? I know you said hair thickness, so that's like 50 microns in one direction, but what's the length scale you build your map at? Um, so the, the 3D model that we did was uh, they took a mouse brain and they sliced it very thinly in, I think we took about 50 slices across, so it's equally spaced across the brain. And then each one of those slices is laid flat on a microscope slide. And then we run the laser across that to make up a 2D image. And then we have 50 2D images of mm. the brain and we range them in 3D space. So then we can actually see them. So we take each of those what is a 2D pixel and turns it into a 3D pixel and then we can look at it as a 3D object. So th- those are pretty small regions that you're able to figure out like local iron concentration and things. Not not quite cellular level, but yeah, not in, quite but, but very detailed for tissue. Yeah, we're, we're talking like 50 micron type oh, resolution. Wow. Mm. So. And when, when you do that, presumably with a mass spectroscopy type arrangement, you're not just looking at one material, you're looking at all the materials that are ablated at the same time. Does it, do you 
do you get, you know, when you do this, as you say, this sequence of slices and you add them all together into this 3D sort of volume map, presumably it's a volume map for iron, it's a volume map for copper, it's a volume map for pretty much everything you find, right? Exactly, yeah, yeah. Um, and so not only... so the. That's the, where we started, was measuring the actual elements. But now there's this idea of tagging certain proteins. Mm. So you put an antibody onto the protein, and then at the other end of the antibody, you have a, a nanoparticle of, say, gold or something like that. Right. And then when we measure the gold map, that tells us where that particular protein was. Yeah. So we can build up maps of different proteins as well as the, the metals that are there as yeah. well. Yeah, I mean, I love hearing about this because, you know, on the flip side of this, you've got functional MRI giving you, you know, especially there at the Flory, they've got the seven Tesla MRI, which gives exquisite detail in terms of the functionality of the brain. And you guys are giving the same sort of exquisite detail in terms of the actual composition of the brain. Um, what What's sort of next in terms of uh, the research? I mean, we've only got a minute, but where's it going? Um, so uh, in terms of the MRI, we're ground-truthing some of the work that the what they're doing. So we actually can give uh, quantitative results for mm-hmm. it, whereas the MRI can sometimes be a little bit more qualitative, depending on yep. who you ask. Um, and also we're branching out into looking at cancer research as well. Mm. Um, so looking at the chemistry of tumours and uh, what we can tell about cancer uh, based on the metal content of the tumours. Yeah, fantastic. Look, Ben, it's, it's really interesting work, and I love seeing these various fields coming together, especially around one of the things I've always said to all my biomedical friends is, you know, without the physical scientists and their fancy imaging techniques, you wouldn't be doing a whole lot because... Yeah, uh, and still be with an optical microscope. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's great. And it's great to see the, the sort of crossover of the applications too. It's uh, fantastic. Thanks so much for coming and chatting to us and um, good luck with the ongoing work. Hopefully um, you'll bring out some surprises that they haven't seen before. Excellent, thank you. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. Almost out of time here at Einstein and Gago, which uh, I tell you what, we've had some uh, fabulous guests today. It's very exciting having you here. It was, yeah. But uh, importantly, I, I wanted to mention something that our good friend Dr. Jen and Dr. Ewan are involved with. It's a, a event that Deacon is running called Emerging Issues in Science and Society. It's on Tuesday, the 2nd of July. So that's Tuesday week at Deacon Downtown, which is um, down on Collins Street. It's pretty easy to find. It's a gorgeous building, actually. I went in there the other week. It's near um, Southern Cross Station, but they have the most amazing facilities there, Deacon. It's really nice. Between 2.30 and 5.30 and they'll be, there's four sessions they're talking about the use and misuse of genetic testing, clean water and remote communities, uh, the future and challenges of food sustainability and AI and bias. And there's some great uh, presenters there Um, and I can even see uh, Dr. Jeff who used to be on our program's face on there as well and I think the whole thing is emceed by Dr. Jen. So if you can get along, it's called Emerging Issues in Science and Society and it's probably worth having a look at. When is it? It is on Tuesday, 2nd of July. Excellent. In the afternoon. So at Deacon Downtown. Um, yeah, we're pretty much out of time, folks. Thanks so much for listening to another hour of science. We'll be back again next week with some more great guests and uh, a great science for you. Until then, have a fabulous Sunday and remember science is everywhere and we'll chat to you in a week. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.